and welcome back to Media Democracy, a podcast about media, politics, the politics of the media. My name is Dan Hind, and I'm joined as ever by my co-host Tom Mills. Hello, everybody. Tom, we're back. We are. Uh, it's almost traditional for us to make a sort of protracted explanation, apology for our long absence. Um, but I think we can skip that. Uh, yeah, but it gets tedious for people constantly hearing apologies. Exactly. Dan and I aren't going to apologise anymore. Anything that we do. Was it n- never, um, never complain, never explain. Now, we have got a great show today. We've done an interview with Trevor Schultz that we will introduce properly in a minute. Um, since we've been away, a lot's happened, including Christmas um, and a sort of non-event of a winter. Have we not uh, been on since Christmas? I don't think we have, no. I think we, there was a lot of brave talk about doing a sort of Christmas special. <laughs> yeah, um, a lot of chat. A lot of chat, which we could have just recorded and put out. Looking back, I mean, it was high quality chat. <laughs> yeah, um, it was. It's uh, now it's just disappeared into nothing. It's got anything, anything that's recorded. Absolutely now. golden content. Does anything that's not recorded actually happen? Um, so there's been yeah, so huge amounts of more or less synthetic scandals and outrages have happened in the media landscape. For the most part, mediated through. Twitter. But as we resurface, one thing that we should sort of talk about briefly, I think, is Tom Watson's speech yesterday on um, fixing a broken digital marketplace. I think something along those lines, mm-hmm. um, which sets out his agenda. Um, Tom Watson is the shadow um, shadow minister for was it culture, media and sport. Yeah. Um, and so media and um, communications falls under his remit. Um, I think you and I would both see communications as, a, as something that spreads in all directions everywhere. Um, but nevertheless, he's sort of point man for policy in this area. Um, and he gave a speech yesterday, which we can link to in the show notes. It's something we always say. I don't know if they always do it. I actually do, find- do it. I think I do that for the most part. Well, I will, I will certainly endeavour to do so. We will, uh, it's Googleable as well, you can find it there. Um, but it sort of sets out an agenda. Um, some some bright spots in it. Um, he does flag up the need for a British Digital Corporation, mm-hmm. um, which I think is, uh, which is a positive sign. Um, and he sketches the outlines of something called a digital public sphere. Yeah, which uh, is interesting, I thought, um, that, you know, this kind of language is appearing now. It is, yeah, it is. I think the fact that uh, the fact that in the, the mainstream there's a realization that private corporations can't really be left to manage public speech uh, in any simple way. I think even you know ten years ago, I don't, it wouldn't have occurred to people that the that digital platforms would be so central um, to the conduct of politics, um, to the conduct of business. Um, so I think politicians and policymakers for a long time were sort of reflexively concerned with newspapers and broadcasters. Yeah. Um, uh, and that and it's probably crept up on them. Things like um, Trump's victory in 2016 in particular have sort of made them realise that, that the dominant terrain in many respects um, is online. Like the key terrain is online. Um, and. What we're seeing, I suppose, is the beginnings of a, a sort of regulatory reflex in some senses. It's a desire for politicians to establish a sort of uh, a regulatory regime that, 
that reproduces um, the way that they manage broadcast. Um, and this is something that I've been writing about for a long time. Um, that if you look at the broadcast system, the, you know, the system that emerges after the Second World War, first with radio um, and, and slightly later with television, what you find is a, a very, very carefully regulated space um, that somehow escapes attention as such. I mean, it's a very striking feature of American culture that the fact that the, the, the television networks were essentially arms of the U.S. state um, and critically dependent on U.S. state support in many dimensions, this fact simply sort of escapes people's attention. And they thought that they had a private media system. They had a they had a free enterprise media system. And it, it's completely delusional. Um, but it maintains this idea of um, a space that was separate from, distinct from uh, state infiltration and control. And the challenge, to look at it cynically, the challenge now for the state is to find a way of regulating the online space in such a way that it, it seems to be independent uh, while being um, beholden to um, more or less secret coercion by by state actors. So do you see this speech as basically that being the thrust of it, like a, a state regulatory um, Well, I, you or... know, I very much see this. I see there is a strong reflex to restore something resembling or reconstruct something that resembles the old broadcast model. Now, if you look at the old broadcast model, what you have is, as I say, very high levels of formal and informal state interaction with broadcast mm -hmm. institutions. Um, like famously, as you as you've you've you know you've documented in your book, um, the MI5 would have a, a veto over various um, employment posts at the BBC until quite recently. It was a sort of bureaucratic involvement in hiring practices at the BBC. Mm -hmm. um, and this was just the most sort of um, uh, the most kind of uh, clear, clear cut example of the way in which the state intervenes in broadcast uh, in order to shape it. Um, and as they would see it, in order to protect parliamentary democracy. Um, if you look at the wider media space, there is, again, there's a lot of informal inter um, or overlaps between the state and um, the, um, the press. Um, there are plenty of people working in British media who are also taking money from the um, Information Research Department, from MI5 or from MI6 or from mm -hmm. CIA. Um, so there's a huge amount of um, covert sort of cooperation going on in the media space. But there's also quite there are spaces in which um, various kinds of oppositional um, journalism are possible. And the end result really is quite an elegant system, I think, where. On the one hand, the vast preponderance of material is broadly supportive of the status quo. Um, but if you want to seek out alternative perspectives, then you can do. And that gives you the sense that, well, actually, if, you know, if most people seem happy with this content um, that is supportive of the status quo, then maybe um, my wanting to see 
profound radical change here is just it's sort of me being slightly unusual maybe mm-hmm. sort of so it kind of it, it allowed people in a way to psychologically marginalize themselves um by not banning what they were um trying to do and not not sort of um outlawing it in some obvious way um but just rather kind of pushing it gently to the margins now the it's clear to me that um there is deep dissatisfaction about the way, for example, that Facebook um, and YouTube and Twitter are hosting certain sorts of material yeah. and creating certain sorts of media personality um, that are um, uh, behaving in ways that are disruptive. Let's put it that way. So someone like um, Alex Jones is, is a figure who's enabled by the online space. He's yeah. achieved sort of a global preeminence. Um, because of um, these these global platforms, um, I think I said preeminence. I mean, he achieved a certain sort of global eminence uh, or you know prominence um, because of these platforms. And I think there is a sense um, that uh, this this can, this sort of thing can go too far, um, and that the the platforms need to become quote more responsible. Um, so one of the things that we saw recently is the emergence of something called NewsGuard, um, which is a, a it's an online rating system. It's an app that you can may be bundled with um, some of the big uh, apps, uh, the big browsers. Um, and, it, and the idea is it will it will rate news sites. And it, it famously said that Daymail wasn't a very good news site. And then it turned around and said, I don't know, it's fine. Um, so there's obviously a, there's obviously a, quite a debate going on about what constitutes a respectable news source. Um, and I think they're all feeling their way towards a, um, a new way of managing information um, that makes it clear to people what the mainstream is, what the acceptable bounds of discourse are and what the peripheries are. Like what you know, what are what is extreme? What is at the edges? Um, in a way, in a way, as I say, that tries to replicate the broadcast regime. Um, and uh, I, I'm not, you know, I, I think in Watson's speech, there's plenty of space to to imagine going beyond that regulatory impulse, um, going beyond the idea that the state's role is to sort of stamp out fake news um, towards a much more emancipatory vision of digital communications where mm. the mainstream is something that is brokered democratically like we decide um what uh, what the mainstream is through you know a, a process of um of constant revision um uh, in a way that is sensitive to the facts and isn't subject to various kinds of um uh, implicit or explicit veto um, yeah, I mean, I think they, you know, the, the the speech. I mean, to be clear, I mean, I've not, I've not sort of gone through it in like huge detail. I mean, I've read the speech, so I'm, I'm being rather impressionistic, I think. So, um, maybe we, you know, we can have a bit more of a conversation, um, a, a return to this again. But my, my feeling was there, there was a bit of a medley of different sort of issues that there, you know, there, there's the sort of fake news concern, which is, you know, I think is driving a lot of the the kind of mainstream policy discussions around this. Mm-hmm. And then then there's the element of, you know, um, algorithmic transparency, uh, data rights and security and so on. 
and 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 then this sort of gestures towards a, a digital public sphere so um i think yeah you can sort of that, that's why i said i thought there were sort of interesting bits and pieces in it i mean that so like there's there's this reference to um Zuboff's book surveillance capitalism you know which yeah. is you know i mean five years ago that would have been a surprising thing to, to to find in a policy speech on um on the digital, the digital yeah absolutely there. and i think you know it does show how much the conversation has moved but i think you're right there's there there's this this kind of concern around fake news which i mean have we even done uh, an episode on specifically on on this this concept of fake news i mean I, I guess it pops up all the time but it might it's something i'd quite like to return to actually is like how we think about this and because there's been a few reports that have come out a few academic papers on fake news but also on um you know the russian propaganda stuff uh, which is probably since we last were on air which and and what they tend to find is that you know these are these are relatively minor problems in in the digital space you know they've been huge i mean i don't think that would be much of a surprise to anybody listening but these are bit these these problems exist but they're you know the scale of them are, are hugely exaggerated i mean i think um yeah the you know the speech at least it it it, it combines and shows and evidences a few important shifts that are taking place like one is yeah as i say over data management and security and you know the role of algorithms and and what the structures of these digital platforms are doing to yeah like public speech if you like um and then the other one i think which is sort of there is around taxation as well and again there's been quite a big shift on this um i mean i suppose you know a few years now we've had a big shift on the the uh on activism around tax and that seems to have really taken off um around google and the other big digital corporations so i don't know there's lots of there's there's lots of interesting directions on here and i think in terms of like what sort of regulatory kind of shape it would take to sort of pick up on some of the points you were making i mean do you, do you think do you think that was sort of clear in terms of what was being said i mean there's there's talk about market correction um yeah. there's talk about choice uh, over sort of con- seems to be sort of controlling the um the digital space in some sense yeah. and but it's not it's not completely clear uh what those elements are i mean some of it seems to be like you say the straightforward sort of regulatory impulse that you take from television so i think there's sort of sections about talking about protecting children online aren't there and yeah. that's a very classic public service kind of impulse the idea that you know children in particular i mean rightly i should say uh, you should be protected from advertising and and influence and so on um so like you say that that sort of echoes some of that public service kind of um ethos but i don't know it's it's interesting i mean just listen to you talk about the 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 influence of the state on broadcasting and so on i mean i, th- I think it's a question of you know what kind of state influence do we want here you know which what what once we once the state has intervened and reshaped the market um who then defines the the ecology is the way i would think of it you know and i i would i have no issue with the state having regulated radio in the early 20th century the question was you know what kind of regulatory form did that take what was the nature of the governance models who was who was able to control production and so on and i, yeah. I think that yeah these are the interesting open questions i mean i think we can agree with tom watson probably on what a lot of the on a lot of the natures of the problems he identifies i mean I, i'd imagine we'd probably differ somewhat on on 
on this whole question of sort of fake news and so on. But um, I mean, anyway, there's a bunch of bunch of stuff we could go into there, which is very interesting. I mean, uh, the as you say, I think that the state involvement in the media system is inevitable. The question, as you say, is what bits of the state are involved and, and how transparent is their involvement? And the problem with the idea of a, uh, in a way, the, the idea of a private or, or independent media system, the problem with that is that it, it is intensely vulnerable to um, secret or radically under-reported under coercion by the state. Mm. Um, what you want is not a communication system that is in some magical way safe from the state because that's that's a chimera like it's impossible um what you want is a media system that is that, that in which we engage citizens through our representatives um in a way that's that's transparent and and can be reported accurately mm-hmm. um if you're all in the business of saying the bbc is an independent institution and we're not subject to any kind of um, undue pressure from the BBC, from the government, while the while MI5 is is vetoing employment in in the BBC, you are you are you know you are part of a radical it seems to me a radically deceptive um, approach to communications. Um, whereas if you said well obviously um, publicly funded media are are going to be engaged in the state in various ways, um, and these are the ways, and they take place in the open air. That's a very different situation because it's then amenable to democratic debate. So, yeah. um, I mean, I mean, the other point as well, if you say about fake news, I mean, one of the fascinating things about this is the extent to which, like, our great purveyors of fake news, like the tabloid press in this country, are, are leading the charge on fake news. Yeah. Um, and uh, part of what's going on is a is clearly um, some sort of um, fight between. Um, the remnants of the press and the platforms um, about um, how they're to be regulated and and how they are to be um, compelled, perhaps, to provide subsidies to um, uh, the, the sort of legacy media journalist operations, Trinity Mirror, News International and so on. Um, we saw recently with the coverage of... Um, uh, you know, this very harmful content on social media platforms. This is becoming a, um, a much more prominent issue. Um, and not wanting to sound unduly cynical, I think this is to, this is in part to do with the way that um, the old newspaper uh, institutions are trying to to sort of negotiate a relationship with Facebook. Oh, it's, that, it's absolutely transparent. And it's not just the old newspapers, you know, it's any of the news organisations, really. And, you know, it's very clear what they want. I mean, in terms of the private ones, like you say, they want the cross-subsidy from the digital giants. And then they want preferential treatment in the algorithms that will allow them to get greater exposure on the platforms. Because basically, you know, these companies are operating as intermediaries for their content where they're now not able to collate the data that they want to be able to sell the advertising properly so they want they want their advertising revenue back and they are you know happy to use these platforms but they want preferential treatment and you can they you know they won they're winning some of those debates around preferential treatment and and that's i think the important thing is that that's i guess opening up you know a, a wider conversation about um what we're going to do about these platforms which is where the sort of more sort of radical vision transformative yeah, vision yeah. can sort of find a bit of an opening i wanted to like uh 
so to to read that little bit of the speech about the digital public sphere, which I think we both agreed would be is the most sort of interesting element of this speech. So this is how Tom Watson describes it: an online space that supports civil society, where people can feel safe, where people don't, won't be surveilled, where they if they are advertised to, they are advertised to transparently. I envisage this as a space where people can go for services from our great national collections to local authority services. Jeremy Corbyn addressed these issues head on last summer when he spoke about building a free and democratic media for the digital age. And he's right that without radical thinking, our public spaces and debates will be taken up by unaccountable tech giants and trust in the media will further suffer. Um, so we need to be bold and ambitious in a challenging media landscape. So there's there's a clear sort of opening there. Um, but the question, I suppose, is is what we what we fill that opening with, which is, uh, I think, I mean, really, is is the thrust of the the interview we're going to go to shortly, isn't it? What what, what kind of organisational forms, if not these big tech, might we be filling this sort of new digital space with? Um, we Dan and I are going to be talking more about you know what what role we think the state should have in this, what, and particularly you know centralised public sector innovation, how that can complement other forms of uh, ownership, and we've written a bit about that as well. Um, unless you've got anything else you wanted to add, Dan, maybe we go over to... No, say that was an unusually smooth kind of segue um, to talk to, to our recording interview with um, Trevor Schultz, um, who I will be referring to throughout as Trebor because of the... <laughs> um, as part of my commitment to mispronouncing any vaguely um, unfamiliar name. Um, Trebor, uh, Trebor rather, is an associate professor at the New School in New York, and he's the director of their platform, Cooptivism Consortium. In uh, the spring and April, he'll be the launch director of the Institute for the Cooperative Digital Economy. And um, his works include Uberworked and Underpaid, How Workers Are Disrupting the Digital Economy. Um, we talked to Treble about one element as Tom said earlier, in this new constellation of uh, ideas about how we manage the digital space, um, the idea of the platform co-op as a, as it were, an economic institution in the private sector. Um, but I think it's it's a it's it's an element of what we need to be thinking about when we think about um, this digital public sphere that Tom Watson mentioned yesterday. So, without further ado, let's go to the interview with Treble. Trebor, thank you so much for joining us today to talk to us about your work on platform cooperatives and different visions of the digital economy. Before we um, go, go further, I mean, a lot of our re listeners will, will be familiar with the, the phrase, but not all of them will. So can I ask in your, in your own words, as it were, what, 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 what are we talking about when we talk about a, a platform cooperative? Well, the, the cooperative digital economy, which is really the term I'm using to describe like this whole field, is often associated with platform cooperativism. And if you think about uh, you know, platform cooperativism, I think that really builds off of four principles. And I think it's more uh, interesting and suitable to think in terms of principles 
Uh, here, I would uh, bring uh, in first uh, broad-based uh, ownership, so that means that stakeholders and workers own and therefore direct and control the technological features, you know, the production processes, the algorithms, the data, the job structures, and all the other aspects of their uh, platform. Then second, it's about democratic governance, which uh, means that all stakeholders and workers who own the platform collectively self-govern that entity through you know, democratic means and uh, one person, one vote principle. Right. And then number three, it's about co-design of the platform, which means that the various users and also marginalized persons that are included in the design and, uh, you know, create the platform together so that they ensure that the software isn't uh, pushed down onto users, but instead grows really out of their needs and capacities and aspirations. And then lastly, it's about a commitment to open source development so that platform co-ops can build new structures of collective ownership uh, internally while lifting up other emerging cooperatives in desperate locations, you know, who instead of having the, to reinvent the wheel uh, alone can apply that model basically building on these efforts that others have made. So I think this is how I would answer this. this is now uh, I think it's it's good to give some sort of concrete numbers there. So this ecosystem I would say has around uh, 300 businesses and projects around the world. Uh, so many of them we are just coming across now. When I'm talking to people in Indonesia, they were just uh, they just told me they have 13 projects there. 13 platform co-ops. Um, you know, I'm going now to the first platform co-op conference in uh, Sweden, uh, and and you know we discovered many in Mexico and I mean all over the world, right? Malaysia, Hong Kong, uh, you name it, Australia, France, Spain, Germany. So uh, you know we are becoming aware of more and more of these uh, efforts. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, it's almost like you've given that sort of capsule description of a platform cooperative economy before because that's that's an incredibly um, neat encapsulation of it um your description already i think gives some some hints as to uh how we might think about um the next question um we've recently seen publication of the age of surveillance capitalism by shoshana zuboff which i think is is helping to um, raise awareness of the business model of the big data platforms um, and the uh, the kinds of um, uh, pressures that are being being put on um, both users and producers in in a, a corporate digital economy. We've also had this um, concern over um, the ways in which uh, commercial platforms can be, as it were, gamed in various ways. Um, how do you think this this different approach to both development and operation um, of the digital economy, how do you think that helps push back against the kinds of pathologies that are starting to be uh, to become more and more apparent to both the public and to policymakers? Well, I mean, I've been uh, part of this uh, uh, field of study uh, for a long time, right? I mean, so I'm written on this since 2008 and uh, there's now uh, a lot of, I mean, like my own stuff and then 
my, you know, my own books and writing and all conferences, etc. But then, of course, there's a whole field of research right now with uh, brilliant thinkers uh, like Shoshana Zuboff that you mentioned, uh, Tom Slee and, uh, you know, Nick Shonichek and many others have written amazingly uh, on have offered a critical analysis of uh, this surveillance capitalism that you mentioned. Uh, what is uh, significantly absent, and or let's just say maybe a bit more modestly, un, uh, you know, significantly underdeveloped, uh, are the conclusions, right? Uh, where the, basically you would point to alternatives that are actually feasible mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, in reach. So that's uh, you know quite absent, and there's a real significant lack of that, uh, especially sort of near-term solutions, you know, that you can actually work on. And I think this has energized a lot of people. This is different with this idea and and practice and movement of platform co-ops, which is quite concrete, and uh, you can you know you can participate and you can build it like next Thursday, right, in this lifetime. Uh, so. I think uh, this is how that matters. And then you ask how, um, so I think, you know, the analysis is, is amazing and important. Uh, and I think this is more and more understood by policymakers as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, from what I can see, um, what is quite, there's quite little understanding about what to do about it, you know? Right. So, I mean, there's antitrust, right? I mean, there's uh, more and more sympathy for antitrust uh, legislation, but, you know, again, like you are speaking from the UK, I'm speaking from the United States, um, you know, quite different willingness maybe to act on those. Yeah. Yes, I mean, there are very different uh, national traditions. Um, in some ways, I think the tradition of the regulatory state in America is stronger um, as, a, as, a, as a model. Um, but the but corresponding, there, there is a less... Perhaps less less of a um, uh, faith in in organised labour as a as a counterforce in some senses. <laughs> could say that. Um, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's that's a that's a wild generalisation, obviously, because there is a there is a strong tradition of organisation in some some sectors of the American economy. But um, we are still, I think, we're still sort of groping somewhat towards, as you say, what a workable alternative looks like um there is a uh, and to be, in fairness i haven't yet read zuboff's um book and so i'm not sure uh, in detail what her proposals are but often there's a, there's a there is talk about regulation and there's talk about sort of informed consumer choices so like the consumer has to become cannier as an individual but there's less um uh, there's less of a sense as you say of w- well what does a working alternative to surveillance capitalism look like where you look at the relationship between um this uh, these emergent platform co-ops and and the state as as both um coordinator as um you know early uh, perhaps seed investor as developmental agent i mean do you see a role for the state as a as it were um as a patron of the um the cooperative digital economy well, traditionally, cooperatives are really uh, vehicles for self-help, right? Um, but uh, I think the, the answer to your question is quite, uh, you know, has to be uh, twofold, really, at least twofold. Um, 
because I mean the situation in the United States is completely different than in Europe, right? Yeah. So uh, here we see uh, the federal government uh, working as a force that assaults workers and takes rights away, right? Uh, so just two days ago. The federal government made it easier for companies to classify workers as independent contractors, for example. Um, and, you know, all the sort of much of the uh, legal structure that was meant to support uh, workers is really taken away. Right. Uh, I mean, in countries like Germany, this is uh, surely different. Um, so it's it's hard to give an, uh, you know, one one fits all answer. Sure. Uh, I think what is really interesting to look at uh, and to remember is that, you know, that this model, especially when we look at, uh, I just finished writing an, uh, a report about uh, a proposal that I made uh, for smart cities, uh, suggesting um, the model of a data cooperative, right? So the idea that, uh, and I'm not going to go too much into this, but sure. just sort of hinting at that, the idea basically that uh, that a civic data trust, which is a proposal which has also been circulated in the UK, uh, should uh, or, or could be uh, governed by a data cooperative, which would be you know a citizen or resident or interest cooperative, whichever form you want to take, or it could be a federation of cooperatives, mm -hmm. uh, uh, basically administrating, gov governing uh, such uh, data trust. And uh, there is, uh, you know, and there is historical precedent. I mean, not only do many data co-ops already exist, right, like with my data and uh, uh, what other examples are there? Good health data, I think it's called, this one, the name of another one. Uh, but there's also historical precedent. So in 1942, right, the Association of Rural Electric Cooperatives was founded in the U.S., which uh, now serves 42% uh, of the electric grid of the United States, right? Uh, serving over 40 million people. And this association of, uh, um, you know, electric cooperatives uh, uh, serving all these millions of people, you know, is, is governed through a board, right? So they, the interests are represented. So there is precedent, uh, for this, and I think that's a good one to look at. That's interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. And is there? So, Sorry, Tom. Do you want to yeah, come in? Yeah, no. I, I was just uh, wanting to hear a bit more about what, what the answer to, to sort of put the question again. If you take the assumption of a sort of a, a benign state, how useful do you see um, central policy in terms of being supportive of cooperative alternatives? And and I wonder how you would see that as potentially combining with uh, regulatory initiatives as well, what, how you see the relationship between these sorts of emergent forms you're describing and potential support, let's say, from the state or, or the relationship right, with right, right. Sort of regulation. Right. I, mean, I mean, so I think the answer is quite different, right? So in, uh, uh, in, uh, in the United States, at least in the current climate, I see it more as uh, these uh, co uh, cooperative forms shielding workers and users, right, against the assault from the state, right, right. as, uh, of course, in, in Europe, uh, um, or let's just take the example of Germany, which I know best, uh, I, I, I would uh, clearly say that, of course, there one would very much hope and, and, and count on support from the state. Surely, in, in both circumstances, in both territories, um, you need to clear the uh, uh, regulatory obstacles that clearly exist. For example, in the United States, uh, one of the major obstacles is um, 
actually, uh, uh, hilariously enough, uh, uh, antitrust, uh, which is that uh, in a federation of cooperatives could very easily be seen as uh, price fixing. Right. So you have cartel law that comes uh, in the way and uh, needs to be addressed. Right. Right. So, which has which has historically been addressed uh, in the United States also for unions. So unions are exempted sometimes from anti-cartel law, but um, <clears throat> so that that's uh, clearly a problem. So we uh, uh, actually wrote uh, some legislation for Senator uh, Gillibrand here in New York, uh, in New York, uh, trying to think through what uh, you know legislative hurdles would have to be put uh, uh, would have to be uh, eradicated. And how the the government could support uh, those structures? Yeah. So you know, we're also doing. I mean, this is clearly a, a big issue. So we we are uh, on February 26. We are convening a working group at uh, of people uh, from all across Harvard University uh, to to discuss how they can work together uh, to you know support this model. So we, we are working on that. Oh, that's interesting. So, so it's as it were an interdisciplinary approach. You bring in lawyers and and people from. Yeah, yeah, it's people from the law school, from the business school, from uh, the library, from uh, you know political science. Uh, I mean, the people who support this, right? Uh, but there sure. are quite a few. So it's, uh, it's I think it's going to be interesting. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, so can we can we talk talk a bit more about your your current current work then you are you're as i said in the introduction before that you teach at the new school but you're tell me a bit about the particular project that you're working on um as well mm-hmm. uh well i think uh first i should mention the uh, platform cooperativism consortium which is really started as an alliance of organizations that support platform co-ops uh, but uh, we have really here uh, uh, in New York are now starting in a research institute at the new school focusing solely on uh, <clears throat> what happens when you bring cooperatives into the digital economy, right? Mm-hmm. And I think we will be the first ones to solely commit to that. Um, and uh, the project that you uh, allude to, it's the uh, Platform Co-op Development Kit, uh, which basically aims to make it easier for co-ops to, uh, for platform co-ops to launch. Mm-hmm. So this has, is, of course, a, a huge undertaking, right? So we, we take an ecosystem approach, which uh, means that we are not looking at a particular, you know, software or project in a particular city, but we are trying to lift this up internationally. So it's, uh, it's a very, you know, it's uh, incredibly satisfying, but it's, uh, you know, hard to uh, quantify in, in, in terms of numbers, which of course would, which is of course what uh, foundations always want to see, right? They want to see exactly how did this, um, create change. Right. This, so we are working with uh, five pilot groups. Uh, uh, for example, I mean, it's, it's, we don't have enough time to, to go into detail with all of it, but we're working with five pilot groups to uh, build an open source software, like a, a yeah. labor platform, yeah. uh, which is basically 
uh, a logistics platform, so any services that you want to order to someone's home, right, for example. Mm -hmm. So this could be anything from elder care to child care to any service you want to bring to someone's house to food delivery, you name it. Mm -hmm. And uh, we are building this with five uh, uh, pilot groups, uh, one in India, in Gujarat, uh, state of Gujarat, in Ahmedabad, uh, which is a... Um, uh, it's a group that is part of uh, SEBA, the, um, um, the um, you know, poor women in the informal economy, um, uh, is the group that this federation of 106 cooperatives is representing. Right. Right. And uh, so we are working there with one platform co-op that is trying to bring beauty services to people's homes. Uh, and then we're working in uh, Brazil with uh, garbage recyclers. Uh, in uh, Germany with uh, refugee women uh, from Syria mostly, but also Afghanistan, and uh, I think there's one from Iran as well. Mm -hmm. uh, in Brazil, where I mentioned already, uh, yeah. then in yeah. the uh, United States with uh, several thousand uh, child care providers uh, so in Illinois, so babysitters, mm -hmm. uh, and in Australia with a social care cooperative, and uh, yeah, that's the ones that I can. And, uh, and think again, of. is the idea here that you'll you'll develop with them a, yes, a set yes, of properties exactly. that can be yeah. taken, as it were, off the peg? Co-design, co-design. Yeah, so it really we build what they want us to build, right? So it's uh, entirely driven by them, right? Uh, uh, but of course, in uh, with this, the little money we have, we. I mean, in terms of software development, this is not very much money. Yeah. Um, uh, we are always having in mind how this can be generalized across those five projects. Obviously, we are not build, building completely different software with these different groups. Sure. Uh, but uh, we are building something that can be used by all of them with some customization. Understood. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I, that's kind of what I was going to ask, Trevor, is you've described as a, quite a variety of different organizations trying to deliver yeah. things uh, how, how similar are the different kind of um technologies and sort of governance models that you described in all these different co-ops are they very close and and and, and how do, what kind of variety is there within this kind of ecosystem well so we focused uh on on those uh, just talking about these five groups um we focused on uh, co-ops that are very scalable. So, you know, like let's say the garbage recyclers. I mean, there are, I think, at least 100,000 in Brazil, probably more. Uh, and you can uh, have the exact same uh, model also in uh, <clears throat> Colombia and uh, in, also in Egypt. We were actually approached by uh, garbage recyclers in Egypt as well, and they said, if you, you know, can work with them, so we tried to make it work for them as well. So the idea is basically to, to create this platform that then can really be used by a lot of uh, uh, groups, uh, you know, scalable groups, scalable groups. Um, and uh, otherwise, in the ecosystem at large, uh, there are all kinds of different... Uh, you know, anything from uh, uh, elder care, child care, food, food delivery, trash pickups, short-term rentals, data entry, child care, home repair, social media, higher education, transportation, journalism, you name it. This goes into very many different sectors. Mm -hmm. I think particularly ripe for intervention is elder care, right? So um, that seems like one of the most uh, key areas of intervention. That's interesting. Well, why do you think that is? 
Uh, well, I mean, simply because it, there is a much, uh, you, you circumvent uh, the need for marketing because uh, there are way more workers needed than are currently available. Uh, I think in Germany it was uh, almost close to a million workers needed in the next four years that are not available right now at all. Um, <clears throat> so... Uh, it's the same in the UK. It's very similar worldwide. Uh, the number of people over 80 is increasing drastically over the next uh, five to ten years, uh, and there is really no infrastructure to support them. That's so what? So, so just describe. It might be just useful to uh, sort of concretely describe what the platform would do in that context, just so people could get more of a sort of feel for how these organisations or platforms are operating. Mm. Um, well, it's quite uh, similar to the, the platforms you know, uh, perhaps a bit more uh, simple and you know rudimentary, really. Uh, but there are significant differences, right? So, I mean, like like I said, these are essentially logistics platforms, right? Where yeah. you order a service and somebody brings something to your house or picks up something from your house or delivers a service to your house. Um, and uh, but the differences are that uh, even when we talk to the women in India, you know, I mean, when I, I I talked with them in August, I was uh, in Ahmedabad and uh, uh, met the first cohort uh, for this platform co-op, and they were, uh, I mean, these were women I had never met, and we talked for like I don't know the first five minutes. Immediately they, they came up, and this one woman raised her hand and said like, "We will not have any uh, uh, reputation system." No voter profiles and no worker profiles, right? Mm, yeah. So this uh, star-based uh, system, they, this was like their second comment. The first one was uh, security, right? So they had to have a panic button so that you can, um, so that they can uh, get help uh, because, of course, it's dangerous to go mm -hmm. to someone's house, right? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so, uh, but the second one was that, and this also appeared here in New York, uh, where Up and Go, uh, the um, very successful cleaning platform co-op uh, also does not have worker profiles. So when you order a worker uh, a cleaning, you do not know who is coming and you only know that the reputation of the co-op, but you don't know anything about the particular worker at all. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So that comes back to Dan's original question about yeah how the data would be managed differently. So the, the uh -huh. reputation is, is here would be at the company level or, or the co-op level rather than the individual workers. What, what, what role does the data collection play? I mean, so it, that, that's interesting, is it? That one of the negative aspects of digital technology is being removed. Um, what, what good aspects are being incorporated right. into the technology? <clears throat> well, I mean, the, I think the key point here is that you can't really fully control what you don't own. Right. So um, I think the idea, you know, like whatever these companies tell us, uh, you know, we don't own their platforms. So we don't really have a say about what happens on those platforms. Mm -hmm. uh, in the case of Up and Go, for example, here in New York, the women, the immigrant women actually own the IP of the platform. Right. Mm -hmm. So they own the code. They have never owned anything in their life in terms of technology, right? This is the first time they, they feel like Mark Zuckerberg, right? They think uh, as if uh, they, they could, you know, this have a huge uh, impact. Mm -hmm. And so they can decide, right, what level of transparency they, you know, want to introduce on this platform or what, what they want to do with those data. 
they are quite overwhelmed. Uh, so I think this is not their first priority mm -hmm. to be concrete, but I think this is definitely something they consider. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Uh, Norm, one of the one of the problems with governance in um, cooperatives is this these inequalities of uh, again inequalities of knowledge that that build yeah. up over time between the people doing the work and their the people coordinating the work. Um, yeah. How have you have there been some have there been experiments in how to to break up this sort of monopoly of of insight that managers tend to have? Well, I mean, governance, as you point out, I think is one of the main problems of cooperatives in general. Right? Yeah. Uh, so uh, this, I think, is quite uh, it's quite clear from the uh, from the research. Right? And um, so one of the things that we are working on and are very interested in also as a field of research is distributed governance, right? So which really goes way beyond uh, co-ops, right? Also, it's just like, how can, it's a, it's a question of voice, right? So how can, let's say, but especially poor people in um, uh, developing countries, countries, <clears throat> economic developing countries um, that are distributed right, across a particular territory, organize and make decisions together mm -hmm. that's a question a research question that we are very interested in and there are a lot of utopias connected to uh, or a, lo a lot of projection perhaps utopias connected to blockchain in this in this area um, and you know so we are this is one of our research projects in india actually is on that topic um, and uh, what's really interesting, though, is that with with this group in India, we are trying to de uh, design a um, a governance tool, which you know, in in my mind, from the first moment on when I thought about this, uh, I thought like, wow, this is about decision making, right? And uh, when we presented uh, Lumio to these uh, elders of these various cooperatives, which are all women, right? Um, they just looked at Lumio and they had, really didn't understand at all like why anybody would possibly need this. Right? Right, right. Uh, to them, this idea of decision-making was like this idea of direct democracy that is, seems to be such a given uh, as an ideal, I guess, or an aspiration yeah. uh, to, to many of us, was for them absolutely absurd. Like They found this absolutely absurd. Uh, Ridiculous, right? So, because for them it was quite clear that you know the the co-op uh, discusses things and then the elders you know make the decisions, and there seems to be very little contestation around that model. Um, it seems to be quite accepted. So, you know, the ideas of democracy and especially direct democracy are very different, as as I found. Yeah, Actually, yeah. in that particular example, I've I've no doubt that's um that's going to be something that you're going to discover more and more. Um, variety in in different in different in different milieu. I'm sure that's true. Um, yeah, utopia looks very different in different places, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but they were very interested in you know for them uh, governance, uh, if you want to call it that, meant really to your point sharing educational materials, right? So they were very interested in that, right? Uh, you know, like how to. Uh, re uh, you know, information about their, how to plant their crop, uh, how, you know, like diseases, uh, uh, you know, so health information, uh, sharing of data about their co-op with the rest of the co-op federation. Um, also, uh, you know, there's, there are educators who are traveling the countries for like 
the country for, I don't know, 40 years uh, giving co-op training, right? So, like, why can't they be captured on video and uh, passing this on to all the co-ops, especially the ones uh, that are hard to reach, right? So there are, for example, in Gujarat, there are some uh, indigenous cooperatives in the mountains of the Adavasi women, which uh, is incredibly hard to reach, right? So every three, four months, somebody makes it there, and that's the extent of uh, contact that they have. And so uh, there, this would be very useful. That's interesting. Just to go back to the um, the eldest quickly in India, did you talk to any of the younger people about whether this was a contested model? Uh, yeah, oh god, I talked with uh, many people. Sure, I mean the the you know I went to the board meetings, so this this would all be elders, right? Uh, and it's a question of illiteracy, right? So I mean it's really the elders who make the decisions, right? And it didn't seem like anything that would be. Uh, I mean I'm not a you know India scholar, but it, to me, from my impression at least, it didn't seem like this was contested at all. Right, right. No, it's interesting. I just had some visions of, of the decision makers telling you that it wasn't a contested model, <laughs> and then thinking um, perhaps it was slightly it was slightly more yeah, nuanced yeah, I than see that. What you mean. Yeah, yeah. But it, yeah um, I mean, it wasn't just. It, it, yeah, it wasn't. It. it I mean, it, it seemed really just alien to them. Right. This, right. Yeah, of of Lumio, we showed them Lumio in particular. That's interesting. I never, I've never really got on with uh, uh, with Lumio. It's interesting you mentioned the um, the uh, the sort of the penumbra of idealism that surrounds the blockchain. Um, it's something that I think a lot of technically sophisticated people are very excited about. But uh, but uh, but the, for the rest, I struggle personally to understand what they're going on about half the time. <laughs> but, um, um, there's an interesting question about how. These how conversations can fruitful conversations can take place between people with very different levels of technical insight. I would have thought, um, which is going to be an ongoing issue. I imagine. Um, it's, it's you know I think blockchain is just like any other technology, right? If you think about radio, television, video, <clears throat> there was always this moment of uh, you know um, hype and. Uh, there was uh, always this moment of wild experimentation, and then you know people find within all of those various experiments like this very small area which is really incredibly useful and 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 purposeful right and meaningful uh, and I think this will probably be quite similar with uh, blockchain as well that's uh, yeah I'm sure that's true I'm sure that's true um, terrific terrific um now for the final question um we are Tom and I obviously are um, thinking a great we think a great deal about the, the kind of the role of the big corporates in the media space um, and you know more broadly in 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 as a societal decision making uh, in the distribution of knowledge and so on your um, your project developing these um, these new platforms is is being supported in part by by Google I mean what do you think uh, what is Google looking? What, what are they looking for for their money in this context? Do you think? Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm not a mind reader. Sure. Uh, but I think it's good to uh, just be very factual here and just sort of share, I guess, the, the facts, mm -hmm. uh, which is that uh, this is uh, the Google Foundation. So it's Google.org. It's not the corporation itself. So when the founders uh, started Google, they um, set up a foundation, and I think it was one percent of the money that of the profit goes into the foundation. 
And uh, so there was an, uh, a competition for an international competition for an eco economic development grants. I think they wanted to give uh, 55 grants for a million dollars each. I think they only gave out uh, 11 in the end or so. Um, and we got one of those. Right. And uh, the... Uh, the, and, and so I had given a talk at uh, the Google headquarters here in New York, um, uh, you know, one of these uh, authors at Google talks, and uh, afterwards they asked me to apply for this, and uh, I said, like, you just heard my talk, right? I mean, I'm obviously not particularly sympathetic to your, towards your practices, uh, and uh, they said, no, no, we wanted to apply. And I said, like, well, it's, you know, everything will be open source and you will not get any of our data. Uh, then that's okay with me. And that was never questioned. So, you know, that's what it is. So it's basically, I mean, we are benefiting the groups that I had mentioned before, all of whom are ex extremely precarious. Sure. Uh, and uh, uh, Google, you know, will, doesn't get any of our data, does not get... Uh, you know, there's, uh, and everything is open source, so benefiting the whole ecosystem. So I don't find this so problematic. No, no. Um, that's. But I can understand where people come from, you know, like, for example, in Berlin, you know, where people were really very upset about uh, the, the um, gentrification issues with the, uh, you know, prospect of having a Google headquarter in Kreuzberg. You know, I understand that they are not particularly happy about. Uh, Google, you know, um, but I think it's it's important to just sort of look at the details and at the small print, and also look at the American situation where really, I mean, we went to co-ops, we went to credit unions, and nobody would give us uh, anything. Yeah, yeah. So uh, if you want this to succeed, you know, you need some funds. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. Well, Tubo, I appreciate your time is um, is constrained. You've got plenty to be getting on with. Um, thank you for giving us a um, a taste of uh, of the work that you're engaged in at the moment, um, and uh, we look forward to seeing how that bears fruit in the future. Thanks again for joining us. Yeah, Dan and Tom, thank you so much. Really a pleasure, and thank you for the invitation.